0: Hello, I'm Steve Usden, Washington editor of BioCentury. I'm joined by FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn. Dr. Hahn, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I'd like to start with asking you about FDA and about FDA staff. How are they doing? Uh, do you know how many have tested positive or are under quarantine or uh, have been hospitalized with COVID-19?
1: So, Steve, you know, as you can imagine, and thanks, thanks for having me this morning. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. I mean, as you can imagine, um, the amount of information, requests, applications, um, et cetera, that have been coming to the agency have been substantial. And, you know, we have had our medical product centers working around the clock 24-7. So it has been really an incredible amount of work that the agency has faced. We have moved people from various centers to those centers that have had the most you know have had the most work and and you know it would be just inaccurate to tell you that this hasn't had an effect on the agency it has for sure that combined with teleworking as opposed to face to face has led to to you know some stresses within the agency but i can tell you that the agency has responded beautifully We have an ongoing and formalized effort around how uh, we can adapt to the new setting, how we can support our employees, how we can provide flexibility to work schedules, and that has really helped in terms of the morale. We have regular meetings at the agency to discuss um, how we can institute new programs to help people cope with the current situation, and many of our employees have elder care and child care issues uh, that they need to address at the same time. I'm not at liberty to release information about folks who have been infected. I can tell you that we have had some uh, and that uh, currently all are well, and we are doing our absolute best to make sure that our folks are following the mitigation procedures that are recommended by the President's Task Force.
0: Well, thanks. I I wanted to ask you to, to turn to some of FDA's actions, and the first one is the use of emergency use authorizations for diagnostic tests and drugs. There's a lot of confusion about what an EUA is. Can, can you explain what is an EUA and what are the standards for granting one?
1: You bet, Stephen. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because, because you're right, it is confusing. So an EUA or emergency use authorization is different than a full approval. And this is only for emergency situations. So when the secretary declares a health emergency, we by statute are allowed to use this EUA or emergency use authorization approach. And you know, in some emergencies, and I think COVID-19 would be one of them, we just can't wait for all the evidence that would normally be needed for a full FDA approval. And after the de- declaration by the Secretary under the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, we began evaluating the options very quickly using evidence that's available currently available and maybe more evidence as we thought necessary and carefully we tried to balance the risks and benefits of the public to making products available. So let me give you an example. When CDC issued its guidance around personal protective equipment and these respirator masks and said that NIOSH masks could be used in certain healthcare settings, we used the EUA approach uh, to allow NIOSH but not FDA certified masks to be used in those settings completely um, aligning with the CDC guidance just an example of how you know we we moved in a certain direction because of the urgency of the situation the need for PPE personal well, protective equipment and the,
0: and the you know and, and you know the the biggest controversy has been about the EUA for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine the the authorization letter that i read says that the data supporting their use for covid-19 is anecdotal which isn't the uh, the standard the, the agency usually uses can you say and why in any anyway, was issued, especially since the drugs were already approved and could be used off-label? Right. So so we recognize
1: that uh, there w- would be and was an increasing use of prescriptions uh, by physicians, both in the inpatient and outpatient patient setting, because of the anecdotal evidence and because of the preclinical or laboratory evidence that suggested it had activity. We wanted to make sure that drug was available, number one, for the clinical trials that we think are of utmost importance because as a regulatory decision, we would need to use those clinical trials uh, to actually make that decision. So we want to make sure drug was available for that and also for people, and we've been pretty we've been consistent in our messaging on this for people who have these drugs for other indications that are approved by the FDA, lupus and um, rheumatoid arthritis, that it was available. So we had a number of donations of drugs from uh, companies. Uh, in order to get those drugs into the country and into circulation, the donation agreements required in the UA. what we did is we based our EUA on the published data that was available to us at time. And you'll see in the EUA, it says certain hospitalized patients where monitoring could be, take, could be done. And so that is the approach that we use for this. Now, we have not approved. The use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19, but did allow drug into the country for the purposes I just described.
0: So I think a lot of people do take the EUA to mean that FDA has approved it. I think President Trump maybe has caused some some confusion about this, and he's also said that he personally called you to get FDA to do the things that he wanted. Was one of the things that he called you about chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine? If not, what you know what is what's he talking about when he? He says, you know, he picks up the phone and calls FDA and calls you and uh, you do what he asks.
1: Yeah, so the president, and I just want to be really clear about this. Not one time, not one time has the president asked me or asked me on behalf of the FDA to make a certain decision one way or the other. The president has called to discuss the issues around therapeutics, sometimes diagnostics and those things. And the president has made it clear to all of the agencies in the government that we have to act with urgency with respect to this crisis. And that's
0: what FDA has done. So so one more question about the uh, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine uh, EUA, and let's move on. What happens if the controlled trials demonstrate that they're not safe and effective for COVID-19? What would be the criteria for removing uh, or rescinding the EUA? We would absolutely use those
1: data, and we would rescind the EUA. And you know what? We're going to have to do this across the board, Steve. We're going to have to relook at some of the things that we've authorized in this urgent situation to determine if they're still valid based upon any evidence we have, but also based upon the clinical situation in the country with respect to COVID-19. So the EUA process provides us with flexibility. Um, but the flexibility is also on the back end as well. And we will, we will maintain our approach to using data and science uh, when we evaluate the appropriateness of those EUAs when we get beyond this, uh, this outbreak.
0: So I want to move on to another topic. There, there's, and, and this is kind of on the, the flip side. There's a lot of concern that some of the serological tests for antibodies to COVID-19 that are on the market in the United States are giving false results. CEO of Roche, said some of the antibody tests on the U.S. market are a, quote, disaster. That's what he called them. Why has FDA taken a hands-off approach to regulating them? So, as, as you know, Stephen,
1: March, we provided uh, significant regulatory flexibility. But just to be completely clear about these issues, we, uh, we, we said to the companies that wanted to market that they must validate and meet accuracy and reliability requirements, that they had to notify FDA of the validation and they also had to label their products, number one, that they weren't diagnostics, but they were serologic or antibody tests and that they had not undergone FDA review. And and the bottom line is that FDA still expects these test developers to validate their antibody tests e- e- even under the revised policy. That being said, we, we share concerns that some of these marketed tests Um, may not have done the careful validation studies that need to be done. And we have done a couple of things. One is we have reached out to the manufacturers and we have obtained some of their tests and we are undergoing validation testing with the National Cancer Institute and the CDC to provide transparency to the American public about this. We've also engaged with a number of academic centers which have done the same thing. They have taken these tests done their own validations and then started to use them in the community and we are putting those data together so that we can again provide this transparency and then finally you know for those who've marketed but haven't done the validation or haven't or, or saying excuse me that FDA has authorized we have uh, approached them we've had them stop that advertising and we've also done interdiction efforts at the at the border so our goal is to get tests onto the market as quickly as possible, but for, for, for end users to understand that validation, they need to look into the validation the company's done or do the validation themselves. And we're willing to, uh, to, to do that with uh, and provide technical assistance. And then one last point, we do have 140 lab uh, developers in the EUA process for serologic tests. So a number of these companies and developers have come forward to us.
0: So for now, though, you're kind of saying it's, it's on the user to, to determine whether the test that they're using is valid. Do you think that that's going to work out?
1: I think what we've seen around the country is that, around the world, frankly, um, is that uh, there are variable test characteristics of these serologic tests. You probably have seen the reports from many of these countries and many of them are self-validated, and I think we need to provide transparency from an FDA perspective. I'm very gratified by the work that the folks at the Mass General on Stanford, USC, and others have done to actually look into this, and you know, I, I, I believe that this is one of the best ways to balance the, the risk and benefit here, and we will work with anyone to try to get valid tests on the market.
0: Okay, I wanna I want turn now to the drugs and vaccines some members of Congress sent FDA a letter a couple of days ago about vaccines. They suggested that FDA might authorize challenge trials. Those are trials where a healthy volunteer will be vaccinated and then intentionally infected with COVID-19 uh, to see if it works. Is that something FDA would do? And more, more broadly, what's FDA doing to try to, to get vaccines onto the market as quickly as possible?
1: So Steve, you know, you point out Congress, but, uh, you know, all Americans are really looking for solutions, and, and we will absolutely listen to feedback and suggestions from every quarter. We are in robust discussions with all of our U.S. government, private industry, and academic partners on this issue. And so from a clinical trial design point of view, we will remain flexible with respect to this. However, we're gonna use data and science to actually make the decision and we won't be pressured uh, to make a decision based on anything other than that. If it's appropriate to take the approach that you're suggesting, we would be very flexible in that regard and we're having those, those discussions right now. We have been partnering with HHS and other groups in U.S. government to actually put together a public private partnership around vaccine development. The pharma companies have been very forward leaning on this, have agreed to share data, use common preclinical or, you know, pre-human models of testing of the vaccine. And we've created a, um, an approach where we said these are the characteristics that we'd like to see in a vaccine and have vetted that with other scientists the U.S. government. So really all hands on deck. The other part of this, Steve, that I think is really important is that we've been also looking to the issue of manufacturing. Should so a vaccine be developed? Where can we get the manufacturing country around the uh, capacity around the world or in the U.S. to make sure that we get these vaccines made and that we have the supplies to actually deliver them and an operational approach to do it on a large scale?
0: You were saying that uh, that, uh, that you've got methods that you've vetted with other scientists for vaccines. Yeah, the characteristics of a vaccine. And we're also looking at
1: manufacturing because the next question would be if a, if an effective and safe vaccine is developed. What about manufacturing ramp up? What about the supplies you need to deliver that vaccine, whether it's intranasal or intramuscular or subcutaneous? And then finally, what are the operational issues you need to scale up to the many Americans that we would need to give this to?
0: So everybody's, everybody's concerned about the timing, obviously. So two questions on that you mentioned manufacturing. First, some companies have talked about seeking an emergency use authorization for an experimental vaccine as early as January. Do, do you think that that's possible? And um, do, you think that, uh, do you think that's possible? And, and more broadly, what's FDA doing to try to ensure that we actually have the manufacturing capacity in place and approved and validated so that when a vaccine is approved or is ready to go, there's capacity? So it's possible, Steve. I wouldn't want to promise you, you
1: know better than most everyone that it would be a fool's errand to promise something that you don't have complete control over. But I can tell you that we're being really aggressive about this with industry. And so it is possible. Um, we will see typical time timeframe with one to two years for the development of vaccine and that's pretty fast uh, by, by current standards. With respect to manufacturing, we've engaged the farmer community. I personally have had calls on a regular basis with this community. Our teams are working with them, looking at what the manufacturing capabilities are and really talking about how manufacturing capabilities could be shared and I have to tell you, Pharma has stepped up to the plate here, and there's a great willingness to share manufacturing capacity to try to ramp up hugely, even if it's not a vaccine that one company is making. So I think that's something that we're really pushing hard on. And the other part that I mentioned, Steve, not to, not to keep emphasizing is, you know, the supplies needed to give a vaccine. We need to make sure that they're available as well and that they're in position so that when the vaccine is ready, we can just go ahead and, and administer to, to Americans.
0: So. Right. There, there are readouts coming soon on, on a lot of repurposed drugs. Monoclonal antibodies are going to be going into the clinic soon. And there's there's hundreds of drugs. Uh, Biocentury has a, a database of a, a couple of hundred drugs that drug companies think may help with COVID-19. What do you think has the most promise? And when do you think we're likely to have definitive answers on what works and what doesn't work?
1: So you're right in terms of the readout. We'll be hearing late spring, early summer on some of these readouts, particularly the trials that have started so early, uh, which is which is a really good, good sign. And, and you're right, there are hundreds of potential agents. Um, many of them have never been in, um, in human beings before. And of course, that's going to take some time because first-in-man drugs really have to go through a, a more rigorous safety testing because other drugs that we know about, we have a safety profile on. That doesn't mean they're not worth doing in terms of studying at this point because, obviously, we need to make sure that we're looking at a lot of different therapies moving forward. I and mean, it could help us in other illnesses as well, so not to, not to lose sight of that. Where I see the, the most promise at this point is in the antibody approach um, as a bridge to vaccine. So convalescent plasma, um, you know, we've treated, uh, we the Mayo Clinic's running this protocol on the expanded access treated uh, close to 2,500 Americans and more every day. Peter Marks and his team has built an amazing network with uh, the, Red Blood, the, you know, the Red Cross and with the Mayo Clinic and academic centers to really scale this up in an unprecedented manner. And this can then be turned into an approach using hyperimmunoglobulin, where you take the antibodies and you basically create a shot that can be given to Americans, both as a treatment and also as a prophylactic. It's going to require donations, and doesn't scale up quite as well as the monoclonal antibodies. So the monoclonal antibodies, which, of course, is a synthetic approach to antibodies against the virus, that will be scaled up in June. Uh, that, Excuse me, that will go into clinical trials in June at our guess, best estimate at this point. And then we're hoping that we can get those trials done quickly. And that also provides great hope because if it can be used as a prophylactic, for example, or a therapy, it could be available for the fall if we see a recrudescence of the disease.
0: Well, th- thanks, Dr. Hahn. I'm, I'm getting a text from one of, your, one of your assistants telling me that I have to wrap this up. I would talk to you all day if I could, but I understand that, that, <laughs> that you're really you, busy. Uh, but uh, thanks, thanks very much for, for, uh, for speaking with me. And thanks for everybody who's listening. Just a reminder that all of BioCentury's coverage of uh, the coronavirus crisis is available in front of the paywall at BioCentury.com. Backslash coronavirus. Thanks. Thanks to you, Dr. Hahn, and thanks to everyone for listening.
1: Thanks, Steve and best to your listeners.